You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Mark chapter 12, verse 38. We're going to get to that scripture in just a few minutes. As you're getting there, something that's happened to us as a society over the last several centuries. It's taken some time with the advancement of human society. It's resulted in this increasing trend towards compartmentalizing life. And the slide that's on the screen kind of gives you a picture of what that looks like. We have these various spheres in which we daily operate, and they remain isolated from each other. I mean, we have our work, we have our friends, we have our family, we have our hobbies, which interestingly we refer to as our outside interests. These circles of relationships rarely, if ever, overlap, though. And not surprisingly, following this trend, most followers of Jesus have also compartmentalized their relationship with God. I mean, the Lord's Day is Sunday. We are mindful of Jesus. We talk with Jesus. We engage and praise Christ on Sunday. But every other day, our relationship with Jesus, it's there, but it tends to be regulated to the prayers we say in the morning and in the evening. In other words, before we start our day and after our day has ended. We compartmentalize it. You know, we have our church friends and we have our non-church friends. The thing is, we profess that Christ is at the center of our universe, but functionally, practically, Jesus has his designated circle of influence just like everyone else in our lives. And perhaps nowhere is it more visible that Christ is not in the center. Nowhere nowhere is it more visible how we compartmentalize our relationship with God than in how we spend our money and engage our resources. Last week, if you were with us, and if you weren't, a reminder, or last week if you were with us and if you were, a little reminder, we, we looked at the first half of the Bible. We looked at the Old Testament, and we tried to better understand how and why our Creator turned generosity. And that's the whole focus of this sermon series, generosity how and why our Creator turned generosity, giving back to Him through sharing what we have been given with and for others, how and why our Creator turned generosity into a law, the law of the tithe. That's what we looked at last week, the biblical practice of giving 10% right off the top from the best of what we have received. Today, though, as we continue this series and move into the Gospels and listen to Jesus speak about money, tithing, and giving, We're going to discover that while 10% may be where God starts in terms of giving back to him, it is definitely not the ending point, not by a long shot. Now, if that declaration that I just made intimidates us or frightens us, be encouraged because the underlying premise of this whole sermon series still is in play. And it's this, giving back to God isn't about something God wants from us as much as it is something God wants for us. Like last week's sermon, we are going to briefly survey some of the things Jesus had to say about money and tithing, and then after that, we're ultimately going to narrow in upon an observation Jesus makes, an example of a person Jesus specifically points to as reflecting all that he teaches us about giving back to God. 
So that passage that you have, just keep that there as we look at some other scriptures first. And we're going to begin by looking at what Jesus had to say about money in general. You probably have heard this before, but I think it bears repeating. In the Gospels, all four of them, Jesus talks a lot about money, almost more than anything else. His number one topic of discussion is the kingdom of God. But right after that, addressed directly or indirectly, it's money. Nearly 30% of the time Jesus spends in the Gospels, he's addressing our handling of assets, property, and resources. I remember, this was a couple years back, having a conversation with someone who, after I mentioned this, how frequently and consistently Jesus talks about money, that person remarked out of an obvious place of disappointment and frustration, you know, I really struggle with the idea that Jesus apparently seems to care more about the state of my finances than the condition of my heart. To which, at the time, I responded something like this. Well, then again, doesn't Jesus directly connect how we handle the money and resources we have with the state of our heart towards our relationship with God and with others? And, and that's kind of where I want to start this morning, because of all the different things Jesus had to say about money, the one passage that always sticks out to me, that really, for me, summarizes everything Jesus had to say elsewhere on this topic, is from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. And as the slide comes up on the screen, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. In this, in this extended sermon, Jesus starts to say, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then Jesus ends this part of this teaching by saying, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here, Jesus makes a simplistic, basic, but telling observation. What we treasure, what we treasure, what we value, what we invest in, what we work to protect, what we cherish more than anything else is where our heart, where our focus, our priority, our attachment, our commitment, where our love resides. Jesus' use of the image of the word treasure here is intentional because what we often treasure is our money, our perceived wealth and resources. Now, I made mention of this last week, and it bears repeating again. Money, wealth, and resources are, of course, not bad or dangerous in and of themselves. They are byproducts of gifts given to us by God, so they can't be bad. Having money, wealth, and resources isn't wrong, per se. It's how we perceive. It's how we handle the money, wealth, and resources we have been given that matters. It's when we treasure these things over and against our relationship with our provider. That's what Jesus is warning us about. It's when we put our heart into this stuff before and at the expense of the purposes and agenda of our Heavenly Father. That's what Jesus is cautioning us against. Once again, money, wealth, resources, these things are neutral on their own. It's in our relationship to money, wealth, and resources, how we view them, how we exercise them, that bears the potential to eclipse both our relationship with God and our responsibility toward others. 
Why? Why, why is this so? Why is, why is money, why is wealth, why are resources so acute in that, in that ability to eclipse our relationship with God and with others? And in all of his teaching about money and wealth and resources, Jesus repeatedly answers this question for us. He does so by underscoring how these things, this stuff, is the number one rival, the top competitor with God for two things in our lives. Two things in our lives that, this is, that our stuff becomes the number one competitor for with our relationship with God. Security and meaning. Security. For some of us, let's be honest, our money, our wealth, our resources, that's our primary source of security. Many of us hold on tight, possessively to whatever we have, leery to ever let it go, vigilantly protecting our money, our wealth, our resources, because we don't want to find ourselves ever lacking or in need. The size of our checking, savings, investment, and retirement accounts, the deeds to our home and to our car are from where we draw our sense of safety, our sense of security that everything's going to be okay before the possibility of a rainy day before the possibility of an unknown future. And therefore, all the stuff we have been provided with becomes our rock, our assurance. All the stuff that we have been given becomes our ever-present help in time of trouble, rather than the one from whom all blessings flow. For some of us, the snare of that money, wealth, and possessions can become is that it defines our security. But for others of us, it's not about security or it's not just about security. It's also about our identity. Others of us spend what we have been given relentlessly, frivolously, in order to ensure we have the best of what's available. What we wear, what we drive, where we live, where we go on vacation— how we are able to participate in the latest and greatest opportunities, how we look, the appearance of our lives expresses how we view ourselves, our significance, our worth, our achievements. Our accumulated stuff symbolizes our status. All our possessions reflect how large and in charge we are. And our identity then becomes defined by our level of consumption and our degree of comfort. We tell ourselves, we tell others, we profess to them, we are saved, we are blessed by the grace of God, but functionally, practically, who we are becomes determined by what we've earned, by what we've amassed, what we've achieved, rather than who we are in Christ. You can tell yourself all the day long that you are saved by grace. You can tell others that it is grace that is at the center of your life. But if you define your identity, if your value, your significance, and your worth comes from what you've earned, what you think you've earned, what you think you've achieved, what you've amassed, then you are not living by grace. You are living according to your stuff. Security and meaning. Both of those things are the ways that those are the two things that can pull and, and kind of distort our relationship, our orientation to the money, wealth, and resources we have. And as Jesus goes on in, in this teaching on the mount, he addresses both of these concerns. He says, in light of this, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, 
or about your body, what you will wear. Look, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Here, Jesus reorients both our sense of identity and our sense of, of security away from our stuff, any money, wealth, or resources we have been given, and back to our relationship with the giver of all such gifts. To those who view their security in whatever they have, Jesus reminds them not to worry about tomorrow, but instead to place their trust in the assurance of the Lord's provision. God is better security, Jesus says. God is the best security, better than money, wealth, and resources, because God is the one who provides all such things to begin with. But Jesus goes on, don't worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. To others who see their stuff, their possessions, their wealth as the source of their significance, Jesus redirects them to recognize we are defined by our relationship with the one who created us. We are defined, our value, our identity comes from the one who sustains and gives us life. We have value because of the one whose presence with and for us makes our lives meaningful, beautiful, joyful, forever. Jesus here is declaring a timeless truth. Where our treasure is, is where our heart will be. And Jesus is teaching us to find our true treasure, both our identity and security, not in our relationship with our things, not in our money, not in our wealth, not in our resources, but in our relationship with our Creator, our Father, our God. I don't know if you catch this, but there's an, a choice implied here by Jesus. A choice implied here by Jesus, one that affects everything. A choice that can transform how we view ourselves. A choice that can change the entire trajectory of our lives. And in case we miss the implied choice, Jesus, as he goes on, presents us with a sobering ultimatum. The next slide shows us, Jesus finally says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The actual word that Jesus uses in this statement is not, in fact, money. It's a much older, forgotten word. What Jesus literally says here is, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Mammon, M-A-M-N-O-N, -M mammon. It's an old, forgotten word, and if you're not familiar with it, Mammon encompasses it all, not just money, but also wealth and material possessions. More than this, mammon has this personalized dimension to it in the sense that of money, wealth, and material possessions taking on a personality or life of their own. And understood in this way, mammon carries a negative connotation because mammon is what results when money, wealth, and the material possessions we have been given in our lives become the things we worship, become idols. When money and resources are what we put our faith and trust in, when they're what we live for and live by, then what we possess ends up possessing us. What we consume consumes us because it drives every thought, every feeling, every action. Our money, our wealth, and our resources drives every thought, every action, every feeling. 
Jesus here, don't miss this, is simply reiterating a fundamental declaration of our faith. He's reiterating a simple declaration, fundamental declaration of our faith, but in a pointed way. What's the declaration of our faith? Throughout the scriptures, Jesus is declaring there is only one God. He's not saying anything new here, but he's saying it in a very distinctive and pointed pointed way because he's declaring there is only one God, and don't kid yourself, it's not money. It's not your wealth. It's not your resources. There's only one God, and it's not all that stuff. Beloved, there's more than one reason that the currency we carry around says in God we trust rather than in this we trust. In money, in stuff. And at this point in looking at what Jesus has to say about our stuff, it's the time to ask ourselves, you and me together, which is it? In God we trust or in our stuff do we trust? All of us sitting here today, we all have money, wealth, and resources. Varying ages, varying levels, but we all have money. We all have wealth to some degree. We all have resources. Heck, put us all together compared to the most of the rest of the world, and we're loaded. We all have money, wealth, and resources we have been given. The question is, what does how we are handling these gifts communicate about what we hold as our security? What does how we handle our money, our wealth, and our resources say about where our identity comes from, what we delight in, what we worship? Because the thing is, and there's no way around this, and none of us this morning, myself included, want to hear this, but the thing is, how we handle and use the money, the wealth, and the resources we have been given undeniably, unmistakably expresses what or whom we love and in whom or what we place our faith and our hope. This is when it gets real. This is where I don't even want to go, and I'm up here. You open up your checkbook. You open up your bank statement, and that is the objective, concrete record of where your treasure is and of what possesses your heart. We all have a choice. We can put our faith, hope, and love in what we have, Or we can put our faith, love, and hope in the one we have in Christ, the one who has us forever in the palm of his hand. Jesus strongly cautions us. If God isn't the one who guides how we use what we have been given, then the money, the wealth, and the resources we have been given will become mammon. They will become a false god we will worship. They will become something that we will deny and despise the way of the real God. The only one who can save us. The only one who can secure us. The only one who does bless us. And this this idea of worship of mammon, worshiping mammon, it's it's really subtle and and complex. It's not just just singular in how it comes about. Worship of mammon can show up in many different ways. Worship of mammon can rear its ugly head in that continual lust for more. The gluttony of never having enough. Worship of mammon is witnessed both in our persistent envy of what others have that we don't, and yet it's also persistently witnessed in the relentless drive of our greed to possess what others don't or can't have. Worship of mammon becomes visible in that sad mixture between our repeated anxiety over potentially unmet needs that leads us to stingily hoard what we have been given rather than share it with others. Worship of mammon is a real thing 
And according to Jesus, it is the biggest threat in our relationship with God. And yet we prefer to talk about a whole bunch of other things in the church. But this, maybe there's a connection? And then some of you are sitting here going, yeah, I, amen, I, I, this, I get this. this, this. I hear this loud and clear. I, I got this message a long time ago, and that is why, Pastor Chris, that is why I give back to God. I'm a regular giver. Heck, I'm a tither. That's why I tithe. I got taken care of my business here, so I don't have to worry about this, all this that Jesus talks about. Okay, buckle up. Because here's the thing. Tithing Giving back to God in and of itself doesn't prevent any of this stuff we just talked about. Any of this stuff Jesus just brought up. What I'm saying to you, and I, and I know it's like a gulp in your throat, we can give back to God, we can tithe, and still ultimately be worshiping what we have been given rather than the giver, rather than the Lord. And this brings us now to what Jesus does have to say about tithing. We looked at that last week, and I mentioned to you we're going to look the, today at what Jesus has to say about tithing, and surprisingly, it's very little. But the little Jesus does say, as you'll see in just a moment, the little that Jesus does say in relation to tithing will reinforce everything we've just heard. So Jesus mentions tithing twice. That's it, two times. And ironically, both times, it's in reference to the legalistic abuse of tithing. The first slide that's going to come up, or it's right there, is the first mention Jesus makes of tithing, and it's in the context of a very brief parable or story that Jesus tells. If you don't remember it, it's this story of a Pharisee and a tax collector who both go to pray to God, but walk away reflecting contrasting relationships with the Lord. And the way Jesus tells it, he describes it, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all I get. In this brief story, the Pharisee is confident in his relationship with God. After all, he's a regular tither. And yet, as you'll see at the very end of this story, it's really quick. At the end of this story, despite this religious person's consistent giving back to God, Jesus fails to endorse the standing of this man before the Lord. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, meaning the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. We're left, this parable is very brief, we're left on our own to figure out what's lacking or missing on the part of this Pharisee. But if nothing else, just from this example alone, we learn something, that tithing in and of itself does not equate to belonging to God. Thankfully, the second and final instance where Jesus mentions tithing gives us a little bit more clarity on this. And it comes up, as the next slide's gonna come up on the screen, in the midst of a broader uh, critique that Jesus has of the religious leadership. Jesus, in this section, is literally kind of listing off all the ways that the religious leadership, what, they, what they're doing on the outside doesn't match what's going on on the inside. And we narrow in on just this one part where Jesus says, woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice, and the love of God, you should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. In this little snippet that relates to tithing, there's something here that we probably wouldn't catch at first, and it's this. Jesus actually describes the religious leaders as being overachievers in terms of tithing. What I mean is, God through Moses, as we looked at last week, had called only for the giving back of a tenth of grain, new wine, oil, and firstborn livestock. But these people, they were going above and beyond in tithing because they were giving even from their garden herbs. 
from their dill, their mint, their rue, and so forth. And yet Jesus rebukes these careful tithers because of their neglect of representing the justice and love of God in their interactions with others. That's it. So here it is, the quick summary of Jesus on tithing. This is it. Jesus doesn't reject giving back to God a tenth of all we've received from him. Jesus here clearly affirms the practice of tithing. However, Jesus also identifies that we can give a tenth of everything we have back to God and still not follow and serve him. Tithing, we talked about last week. Tithing is a benchmark. It sets a benchmark. It provides us with the standard. It defines the minimum we are called to offer back to God. But tithing as the representation of a larger commitment, as the representation of our reliance upon the Lord, is just a starting point. Beloved, it's not about the ritual of giving a tenth back to God. It's about the relationship that God desires to have with us. The Lord, in other words, doesn't want the treasure of our hearts. The Lord wants to be the one our hearts treasure. We can give something back to the Lord without offering everything. And make no mistake, the Lord desires everything, all of us. And that brings us to our focal passage for this morning, the one that you've been holding on to. This moment as Christ perceives what we only can perceive as law into gospel. As he takes what we've been talking about as more than a minimum to get by with and into a gift of all that we have and all that we are. As the slide comes up on the screen for this encounter, I want to remind you again, this is not a parable. This is not a parable. This is a slice of real life in Jesus' day-to-day. And it begins by Jesus in the midst of teaching. All of a sudden, we're told by Mark, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Let's just break this down, what we have at the start here. Jesus and his disciples are gathered near the treasury, And what that is, that's a place where the religious people gathered far and wide and came and made their offerings at the temple in Jerusalem. Specifically, they were in the inner part of the temple in a large courtyard called the Court of Women. And just so you can picture this place, 13 wooden boxes were placed around this area. And these boxes were outfitted with trumpet-shaped bronze funnels ready to receive gifts from the worshipers, each with a different purpose for their contribution. And Jesus enters into this scene, and as you notice, he purposefully steps back and does a little bit of people watching, right? He observes how people give back to the Lord through this offering. Lots of money, we're told, is being tossed around, especially by those who have means. Remember, there's no paper money at this time, only coins of various sizes and metals. So I want you to imagine how much noise the larger gifts made, likely larger coins both in size and quantity as they clanked against the bronze funnels of the offering boxes. The louder the sound, and these gifts were hard not to miss. And no doubt you can imagine for some people gained some unspoken nods of approval from the crowds. Mmm, yeah, good job, well done. Jesus, however, narrows his attention on a rather unassuming person who probably would have gone otherwise unnoticed, a widow. And widows 
given their social status back then, didn't have much. That's why she's referred to here as a poor widow. Bearing little to no accumulated wealth of their own, widows relied on the compassion and generosity of others to support themselves. Nonetheless, this widow who represents all those who literally don't know where their next meal or their next month rent will come from, comes forward and offers two coins in her possession. Copper, not gold or silver, Copper, these coins, which you probably have heard to referred to in tradition as the might, the widow's might. And in fact, that word might is a 17th century word. It's not the word that's used here. Might is a carryover from when the Bible was translated into the King James Version, and that was the word that was used. The actual word for these two copper coins is leptin. And the leptin was the smallest copper coin in Israel at the time. Its equivalent value was a few minutes of labor. Not a few hours, a few minutes of labor. And these coins were so small as to be barely even visible to the naked eye. So you can imagine putting two of these coins in, her contribution barely makes a sound in terms of metal against metal. But then watch what happens here as the next slide comes up. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, This widow, this poor widow, has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Jesus calls over the disciples and directs their attention on this widow. And he compares the giving of this woman against the giving of everyone else. And I know we're like, wait a second, that's not fair. God shouldn't compare my giving to other people. Well, guess what? Jesus does. He does it right here. Jesus compares the giving of this woman to everyone else. Jesus assesses the giving of this woman compared to everyone else and declares that she's given more than anybody else that's there. Why? Because as Jesus explains, everyone else gave out of their wealth. Stop there. Everyone else gave out of their wealth. That's the English translation. It doesn't do it justice. You could be deceived by that. What the word that's literally here is everyone else gave out of their surplus. Let's break that down, what that means. Everyone else, in other words, gave back to God last. Only after they were done spending what they felt they needed to spend. And therefore, they offered what they had left over to the Lord. This widow, on the other hand, gave back to God first. In fact, she gave the Lord her best from all she had, all she had to live on. That's what's going on here. Okay, we need to go on a time machine back to before Chris was Pastor Chris, when Chris was parishioner Chris, when Chris was sitting in the pews like you and any time in a sermon or a Bible study this story came up, this was one of the Bible stories I couldn't stand. This was one of those stories that made the Bible difficult for me. This was one of those stories where we're like, Jesus, really, why do you have to go here with this? I was skeptical of this story. I was disapproving of how this story plays out. This is, I mean, again, if you don't remember, I have a business background before I was a pastor, and I would hear this story, and I was like, this is irresponsible. This is irresponsible. This is not an example we'd point to others to emulate. Oh, you can't, you don't know if you're going to make your rent payment next month? Just give it to God. 
Oh, you can't put gas in your car? Hey, just give it to somebody else. Give it to the Lord. I hated this story. I hated this story because it just didn't make sense. You don't give away all that you have because then you have nothing. I mean, if I don't take care of myself, right, then I can't help anyone else. Persistently, whenever I heard this story, whenever I read it, I would just think no one in their right mind would ever do this. And in fact, because that's just the kind of guy I am, to my pastor at that time, I finally said, no one in their right mind would ever do this. And that pastor at that time said, well, maybe it's not so much about the mind, but more like Jesus talked about earlier, it's a matter of the heart. That didn't still work for me. Because try, and as I did to do the math, it just didn't add up. This doesn't add up. But the thing is, Jesus here, is in directing our attention upon this particular woman, is shifting our focus away from counting how much is in our pocket, what's in your wallet. He's shifting our focus away from counting how much is in our pocket and looking instead at exactly what treasure possesses our heart. This widow gave all she had because there was no other way for her to give, because the Lord was her treasure. Because she understood not just her heart, but her entire life belonged to God. Her giving was not foolish, and it was not undertaken lightheartedly. It was born out of response to God's character, particularly the Lord's promise of his faithfulness to her. Now, I know what you're thinking, because I went here too. Does this mean we have to give until we have nothing left? And ironically, right in that moment, if you're asking that question, we sound exactly like the absolute antithesis of this story, which is the story of the rich young ruler. Remember him? Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus, I'm all about you. Jesus, I'm all in. Oh, all the commandments. Had them since I was a kid. Okay, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then follow me. You want me to give away everything I have? And here we have the exact opposite of not a rich young ruler, but a widow who does exactly that. But but, but back to it. Does this mean God wants us to give away until we have nothing left? (laughs) Along the way, I've been sharing my journey, our journey, Beth and I in giving and and how God has worked in our lives and, and helped us to understand what this is all about. And I've shared with you previously, if you haven't been here, how the shift of not just believing in grace, but actually living out of grace. I shared this understanding of focusing on not how much, but focusing out of gratitude is the motivation for our giving and how that is, and being moved not to wait to be generous, but just to be recognized I can be generous with whatever God has given me. And all of this is true in our, was true in our lives, in our young lives. But the reality is, even though grace was there, gratitude was there, generosity was there, if I'm being completely honest with you, Beth and I were still hedging our bets. I mean, if I'm really honest with you, we eventually in our early 20s got to the place where we were tithing. And we were very, very proud of ourselves. And I mean very, very proud of ourselves. If I'm telling the truth, I'd sit in church on Sunday, and when the offering time came around, I used to be like, yeah, that's right. Early 20s, I'm tithing. Uh Uh-huh, that's right. I'm giving 10%. Wonder how many the rest of you people are all giving 10%. Now, I know that I'm not saved by that, but I'm sure I'm going to get a plaque when I get to heaven. (laughs) Early 20s, I'm tithing. I'm not kidding around. I was like, did it, done, tithing. 
and I got, we got complacent. We, you know, we hit it. They, God set the minimum. It wasn't easy. We got there. Yes! Complacent. And hearing stories about this, you know, widow's my hey, you know, tithing would have been just fine. That would have been great because that that's a big deal. God says so. And here's the thing. I want to hit you again. Grace was there. You know, in the midst of everything I'm telling you, it was about grace. It was gratitude overflowed in our lives. Generosity was what we were about. But here is what finally God, the next breakthrough in our lives, is that in the midst of grace being real, generosity being a reality, gratitude being where it all came from, we, were re- we recognized we were still compartmentalizing our life. Just like I started with. We still were compartmentalizing our life. We were taking God in pieces. Okay, God, we've taken care of this. What else you got? And the, the, the transformative moment in the midst of that wrestling where this story changed for me is the realization that God didn't just want 10%. God wanted all of me. All of us. My friends, if we just keep crunching the numbers in our relationship with God, then we are going to miss the point of this story. And here it is. Our relationship with God isn't measured by how much we give. Our relationship with God is measured by how much we keep. It's not about how much we give back to God. It's about how much we hold back from God. And again, there's no way around this. You're not going to want to hear this, but this is most certainly true. Whatever we are holding back from God, whatever you are holding back from God is exactly what separates you from God. We live in these fragmented, compartmentalized lives, and all we want, all we want just so badly is a law or a standard from the Lord. Just tell me what I owe you, God, so I can get on with the rest of my life. But God didn't show up in Christ like a bookie to collect on a debt we owe. God came down in Christ to clear all of our debts so we could freely give ourselves back to him. Jesus is teaching us when it comes to giving back to God, the Lord wants it all. Jesus didn't merely tithe his body and his blood, giving us 10% of himself. Christ gave all of himself for us. And Jesus gave us everything he had on the cross and through the resurrection so we would give everything of who we are to him because the Lord wants all of you, all of me, all of us. Do you get it? Some people have called Jesus' teaching in this way. Jesus' teaching here, they've called it sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving. I couldn't disagree more. Yes, there are other scriptures that frame what we're talking about here in sacrificial language. But that's imagery for the benefit of our limited understanding. That is not what this is really all about. Think about it. Sacrifice bears the connotation of loss, of losing something we had. From our perspective, Jesus asking us to die to ourselves, to give all of who we are to God, that seems like a sacrifice. But it's not, really, Because what Jesus is calling us to is not to lose something we had. Jesus is calling us to gain something we never had. It's about experiencing the fullness of the life that we were always meant to live. It's about being grown into the best version of ourselves that we were always created to become. 
What Jesus talks about here is not so much about giving something up as it is giving ourselves completely to God. Because in giving more than we could ever earn, in giving more than we rightly deserve, what Jesus is calling us to is not sacrificial giving, it's sacramental living. What Jesus is calling us to is to become, through everything that he's given us, to become people who are more than generous, like God is toward us all. Here's my problem with sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving, if that's how you want to phrase this, sacrificial giving forces us to always ask, have we given enough? That question plagued me for years. Have we given enough? If Jesus isn't about tithing, it's about sacrificial giving. And I would always go, have I given enough? Is this enough? What's enough? How much? Sacrificial giving plagues us with the question of, have we given enough? And the thing is, how many times, different ways you ask this question, the answer to this question is always a zero sum. When we ask the question, have I given enough, it's always a zero sum that ends up pounding us with guilt, leading us to give out of compulsion, giving not to draw closer to God, but giving so that we can feel better about ourselves. The thing is, the gospel reframes the question of have I, have you, have we given enough? It reframes the question to the answer of Jesus Christ the only one who can and has given enough for all of us. My friends, the the Bible is clear on this. The ultimate, necessary, and final sacrifice was effected by Jesus on the cross and through the resurrection. There is no need for further sacrifices. It's not about sacrificial giving. It's about sacramental living. Sacramental living is not about how much of what I owe I will give back to God. Sacramental living is about how much of me am I willing to give back to God? How much of our lives are we willing to offer for the sake of the Lord's plan for this world? How much are we willing to offer trusting that every step of the way we will never be found wanting, that the Lord will always provide exactly what we need? You look at me, and many of you have, and it always comes up when we talk about giving and money and stuff. You look at me, and whether it's regular giving to grace to support what God is doing here, or whether it's this capital campaign, or whether it's the broader scope of how you're giving back to God in this world, you ask me, how much should I give back to God? And the only answer I can give you is look at the cross and you tell me. Look at the cross and you tell me. Because if it's anything less than all of yourself, then look again. Look closer. Look more deeply at Jesus. Because here's the thing. Whenever Jesus has been rightly seen, whenever the person and work, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ has been grasped, people have given all that they have and all that they are. The radical giving of God, who is more than generous toward us, is expressed through the radical generosity of the body of Christ, the church, towards the world. And we witness this. There's proof, evidence. We witness this in the lives of the martyrs, in the sacrifices of missionaries, in the countless other acts committed over the last 2,000 years where people weren't counting what was in their pocket. But they were asking what was holding on to their hearts. Because whenever grace penetrates our hearts, gratitude pours out. Generosity follows, and we hold nothing back. 
And when we hold nothing back from the Lord, everything of Christ is ours. Hear that this morning. When we hold nothing back from the Lord, everything of Christ is ours. Everything of Christ is ours, not because of anything we give, but because Jesus has already given everything to and for us. Amen?